This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Welcome. This is the one year Bible reading for July 26th, and we are beginning today in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 with the kingdom of Judah again after King Asa's passing. Then Jehoshaphat, Asa's son, became the next king. He strengthened Judah to stand against any attack from Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah, and he assigned additional garrisons to the land of Judah and to the t- towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had conquered. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's early years and did not worship the images of Baal. He sought his father's God and obeyed his commands instead of following the practices of the kingdom of Israel. So the Lord established Jehoshaphat's control over the kingdom of Judah. All the people of Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he became very wealthy and highly esteemed. He was committed to the ways of the Lord. He knocked down the pagan shrines and destroyed the Asherah poles. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent out his officials to teach in all the towns of Judah. These officials included Ben-Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah. He sent Levites along with them, including Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asheel, Shamiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tob Adonijah. He also sent the priests, Elishama and Jehoram. They took copies of the book of the law of the Lord and traveled around through all the towns of Judah, teaching the people. Then the fear of the Lord fell over all the surrounding kingdoms so that none of them declared war on Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought him gifts and silver as a tribute. And the Arabs brought 2,700 rams, I'm sorry, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful and built fortresses and store cities throughout Judah. He stored numerous supplies in Judah's towns and stationed an army of seasoned troops at Jerusalem. His army was enrolled according to ancestral clans. From Judah, there were 300,000 troops organized in units of 1,000, under the command of Adna. Next in command was Jehananan, who commanded 280,000 troops. Next was Amashiah, son of Zikri, who volunteered for the Lord's service with 200,000 troops under his command. From Benjamin, there were 200,000 troops equipped with bows and shields. They were under the command of Eliada, a veteran soldier. Next in command was Jehozabad, who commanded 180,000 armed men. These were the troops stationed in Jerusalem to serve the king besides those Jehoshaphat stationed in the fortified cities throughout Judah. Now Jehoshaphat enjoyed great riches and high esteem, and he arranged for his son to marry the daughter of King Ahab of Israel. A few years later, he went to Samaria to visit Ahab, who prepared a great banquet for him and his officials. They butchered great numbers of sheep and oxen for the feast. Then Ahab enticed Jehoshaphat to join with him to attack Ramoth-Gilead. 
Will you join me? Will you join me in fighting against Ramoth Gilead, Ahab asked. And Jehoshaphat replied, Why, of course, you and I are brothers, and my troops are yours to command. We will certainly join you in battle. Then Jehoshaphat added, But first let's find out what the Lord says. So King Ahab summoned his prophets, 400 of them, and asked them, Should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? They all replied, Go ahead, for the Lord will give you a great victory. But Jehoshaphat asked, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord around too? I would like to ask him the same question. King Ahab replied, There is still one prophet of the Lord, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything but bad news for me. His name is Micaiah, son of Imlah. You shouldn't talk like that, Jehoshaphat said. Let's hear what he has to say. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Quick, go and get Micaiah, son of Imlah. King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah, dressed in their royal robes, were sitting on thrones at the threshing floor near the gate of Samaria. All of Ahab's prophets were prophesying there in front of them. One of them, Zedekiah, son of Cananiah, made some iron horns and proclaimed, This is what the Lord says. With these horns you will gore the Arameans to death. All the other prophets agreed. Yes, they said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and be victorious. The Lord will give you a glorious victory. Meanwhile, the messenger who went to get Micaiah said to him, look, all the prophets are promising victory for the king. Be sure that you agree with them and promise success. But Micaiah replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I will say only what my God tells me to say. When Micaiah arrived before the king, Ahab asked him, Micaiah, should we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? And Micaiah replied, go right ahead. It will be a glorious victory. But the king replied sharply, how many times must I demand that you speak only truth when you speak for the Lord? So Micaiah told him, in a vision, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, their master has been killed. Send them home in peace. Didn't I tell you, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, he does it every time. He never prophesies anything but bad news for me. Then Micaiah continued, listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who can entice King Ahab of Israel to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so that he can be killed there? There were many suggestions until finally a spirit approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go ahead and do it. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of your prophets, for the Lord has determined disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kanaai, walked up to Micaiah and slapped him across the face. When did the spirit of the Lord leave me to speak to you, he demanded. And Micaiah replied, you will find out soon enough when you find yourself hiding in some secret room. King Ahab of Israel then ordered, arrest Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to my son Joash. Give them this order from the king. Put this man in prison and feed him nothing but bread and water until I return safely from battle. But Micaiah replied, if you return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added to those standing around, take note of what I have said. 
So the king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah led their armies against Ramoth-Gilead. Now king Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, As we go into battle, I will disguise myself so no one will recognize me, but you will wear your royal robes. So Ahab disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Aram had issued orders to his charioteers, Attack only the king of Israel. So when the Aramean charioteers saw Jehoshaphat in his royal robes, they went after him. There is the king of Israel, they shouted. But Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord to save him, and God helped him by turning the attack away from him. As soon as the charioteers realized that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped chasing him. An Aramean soldier, however, randomly shot an arrow at the Israelite troops, and the arrow hit the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. Get me out of here, Ahab groaned to the driver of his chariot. I have been badly wounded. The, the battle raged all that day, and Ahab propped his hands until evening. Then, just as the sun was setting, he died. Romans 9.25 Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will now call my people, and I will love those whom I did not love before. And once they were told, you are not my people, but now he will say, you are children of the living God. Concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, Though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand on the seashore, only a small number will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said in another place, If the Lord Almighty had not spared us, we would have been wiped out as completely as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well then, what shall we say about these things? Just this, the Gentiles have been made right with God by faith even though they were not seeking him. But the Jews, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law and being good instead of depending on faith. They stumbled over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall but anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is that the Jewish people might be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Instead, they are clinging to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They won't go along with God's way, for Christ has accomplished the whole purpose of the law. All who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses wrote that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But the way of getting right with God through faith says, you don't need to go to heaven to find Christ and bring him down to help you. It says, you don't need to go to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. Salvation that comes from trusting God, which is the message we preach, is already within easy reach. In fact, the scriptures say, the message is close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. If, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. 
As the scriptures tell us, anyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who generously gave his riches to all who asked for them. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Psalm 20. In times of trouble, may the Lord respond to your cry. May the God of Israel keep you safe from all harm. May he send you help from his sanctuary and strengthen you from Jerusalem. May he remember all your gifts and look favorably on your burnt offerings. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for victory when we hear of your, a shout for joy when we hear of your victory, flying banners to honor our God. May the Lord answer all your prayers. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed king. He will answer him from his holy heaven and rescue him by his great power. Some nations boast of their armies and weapons, but we boast in the Lord our God. Those nations will fall down and collapse, but we will rise up and stand firm. Give victory to our King, O Lord. Respond to our cry for help. Proverbs 20, 2 and 3. The king's fury is like a lion's roar. To rouse his anger is to risk your life. Avoiding a fight is a mark of honor. Only fools insist on quarreling. And to end today, we are back in the life you've always wanted, this time in chapter five, which is called An Unhurried Life, The Practice of Slowing. And John Ortberg tells the story of meeting with his mentor, who I believe is Dallas Willard from other things that I've read. Um, and he tells him about his pace of life and the condition of his heart and his spiritual health and asks him what he can do to help things. And there's a long pause and he says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then there was another long pause. So John Ortberg writes that down and he says, okay, great. Yeah, what's next? And there's another long pause and he says, there is nothing else. And Ortberg writes, so imagine for a moment that someone gave you this prescription with the warning that your life depends on it. Consider the possibility that perhaps Perhaps your life does depend on it. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry can destroy our souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. Again and again, as we pursue the spiritual life, we must do battle with hurry. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied for a mediocre vision of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. And he talks about the disease of hurry sickness and that one of the great illusions of our day is that hurrying will buy us more time. But our experience is that that is not the case. He writes, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. Let's do a brief diagnostic exercise. How do we know if we are suffering from hurry sickness? Here are some of the symptoms. Constantly speeding up daily activities, worried that we do not have enough time. And this symptom might be the case in you if you're at the grocery store and you're trying to decide, you know, which line do you need to get in that is gonna be finished 30 seconds before the other. The other is multiple tasking or multitasking. Um, you know, when we're driving in our cars, are we also eating and drinking our coffee and uh, answering phone calls and planning the day? So we're doing multiple things at the same time. The third is clutter. 
lives of the hurry sick lack simplicity. Um, and so we tend to accumulate things. Even when we clean out, we just reaccumulate. And he writes, there are other less material forms of clutter. Life is cluttered when we are weighed down by the burden of all the things we have failed to say no to. Then comes the clutter of forgetting appointments, important dates, and not following through. Superficiality is a symptom of hurry sickness. And he writes about the importance of depth and that we cannot get depth um, in a hurried way. It says, today we have largely traded wisdom for information. We have exchanged depth for breadth. We want microwave maturity. And an inability to love is another symptom. The most serious sign of hurry sickness is a diminished capacity to love. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is one thing that hurried people do not have. And finally, sunset fatigue, which relates to that. Um, that at the end of the day's work, when we're with those who need our love the most, we have the least to give. We rush when there's no reason to. There's an underlying tension. We set up mock races. Okay, kids, let's see who can get to the bath fastest that are really about our own need to just get through it. Loss of a sense of gratitude and wonder and indulging in self-destructive escapes from fatigue like alcohol, watching too much TV, and so forth. So it says, because it kills love, um, it is because it kills love that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life because that's our goal, right? To love God better and to love others better. Lies behind much of the anger and frustration of modern life. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to his children. That's why Jesus never hurried. If we are to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we are following. We can do this. We can become unhurried people. We can become patient people. And we're going to find out how to do that tomorrow. Hope you have a beautiful day. Love you all.